God's plan was to bring in a new servant. And we find that servant introduced to us in his coming there in the first in the first section. Then the second section of Isaiah deals with judgments that were leveled against the nations around Israel at that time. And then then we close the book with the emphasis upon the servant of Yahweh and about the 40th chapter and then uh, what that servant of Yahweh is going to accomplish in in reestablishing the new heavens and the new earth. The sinful theme of of the whole book is the comforting of Zion. And the question is, who is Zion? One of the uh, issues that we have between the dispensational view and the reform view is that uh, dispensationalists want to be uh, more literal and so Zion there is the Jewish nation. Whereas uh, they believe that the reform position is a replacement theology that the church replaces Israel. Well, I, I would disagree with that, and so would many Reformed brothers also disagree with that. The church does not replace national Israel. But rather, we find there is a remnant within national Israel that God called out to Himself. And all the promises of the Old Testament center in that remnant people. And that remnant people will be redeemed by the Lord's servant. So there is God's comforting of Zion. But the the blessing and the thing, one of the things, and I'll point this out in the message this morning, that is often uh, overlooked and is that uh, when Jesus came to Israel, in the incarnation. It was not uh, to, to try to fix national Israel, but to judge them. In fact, John the Baptist came preaching, the axe is laid to the root of the tree. In other words, judgment's coming. Prepare. And if you're part of the remnant, repent. By the way, I saw an interesting statement there from from some uh, church that said, uh, "If you if you go to a church there that preaches repentance, avoid it like the plague." You know, we don't preach repentance anymore. We preach grace. Uh, no, 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 no. Repentance is absolutely necessary, but grace enables repentance. Grace enables repentance. And there is, the scriptures are full of that emphasis. So we preach repentance. But there was no repentance among in national Israel. But there were a, there was a remnant that did. You can see that very clearly in scripture. So I want to I, I want us to begin here by. And you don't have an outline today. I just didn't have time to get one out. So, in Isaiah chapter 42, 
I want to just read the first nine verses for our scripture reading. If you all stand, please, for the scripture reading. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. To the nations, notice that. He will not cry aloud, nor lift up his voice, or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. This, these references are, are quoted there concerning Jesus in the New Testament. He will faithfully bring forth peace. He will not grow faint nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. The coastlands wait for his law. In other words, not just related to one nation, it says the coastlands. In other words, this is the way they express a far outreach. Thus says... God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the heaven, I mean the earth, and what comes from it, who give, gives breath to the people on it, and the spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you, and I will give you as a covenant for the people and a light for the nations. To open the eyes of the blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Thank you. You may be seated. So, what should Christians look for in uh, Christmas, at the Christmas time? And I said, as I stated earlier, there's no better place to go than the book of Isaiah. I want you to go back, uh, go, go back to the 40th chapter. I just want to give a little preview here. The 40th chapter, notice it begins, Comfort, comfort. My people, says your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Now, what Jerusalem? Well, I, in my opinion here, this is not the earthly Jerusalem, but as in we read in the book of, of Galatians, this is the Jerusalem that's from above. The Jerusalem that is of earth is in bondage, but not the Jerusalem from above. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and, and cry to her, her that her well warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Notice how it's, it's talking here about the coming of Jesus Christ. 
John the Baptist, that voice in the wilderness. And what will be the result? Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. And the even ground shall be made, become level, and so on. And, and so notice then why God is able to declare this even if He has an unbelieving, rebellious people that He is speaking to. Because we read there in verse 6, the voice says, Cry, and I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all the beauty like is like the flower of the field. James talked about that. It withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. But what? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. What God declares that He is going to do, He does. He made a promise to redeem a people for His name, and He will fulfill that promise. And then the passage goes into the greatness of our God and deals with the, with the problem that the Jews, Jewish people had with, with their persistent idolatry. Coming into the 41st chapter, God comforts them again. Fear not, I am with you. God has not changed his mind nor his purpose. But how will he accomplish that? He's going to have a new servant. Not, not, not a different servant, but a servant within the servant, the servant, original servant people, Israel, he's going to bring up one out of that that will be faithful to him and accomplish everything that he wants. And so, thus we read in the 42nd chapter, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. The Lord spoke from heaven at his baptism, and he said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. On the Mount of Transfiguration, he said, This is my beloved Son, hear him. Why? He said, I put my spirit upon him. Everything Jesus did, he did in the power of the Spirit of God to accomplish the work of God and to fulfill. Thus he became Israel's only Savior. And the plan was that God would redeem this remnant out of Israel. But not only would he redeem a remnant out of Israel, he would redeem a host of Gentiles that no one can number out of every tongue, tribe, kindred, and nation. It's interesting that Isaiah is quoted or alluded to approximately 900, excuse me, 419 times. I'm, I'm dyslexic. I re, I'm reading it backwards. 914 times. No, not, four, 419 times. In the New Testament, the more, more than any other book of the Old Testament, including the Psalms. Psalms does come in a, a close second with 414 ref, uh, references. 
That time I got it right, see, because it's 414. So I could read it either way and it still comes out the same. Now what we have though is, a, is here the powerful re relevance of Isaiah's message. And, and where, you, in, where you see it is in an unlikely place. And that was the cleansing of the temple. Let me explain. That cleansing of the temple is cited in all the Gospels. All four. It, actually, it occurred twice. At the beginning of Christ's ministry and at the end of Christ's ministry. And, it is, and there is a definite purpose for the fact that the cleansings took place at the beginning and the end of his public ministries. John records the first. The synoptic gospels do not record the first. And it has caused some people to think that John was wrong. That he got, he got the cleansing out of place. No, he didn't. There's two of them. So in John chapter 2, we have that first cleansing and the second occurs, as I said, at the end of his ministry after the triumphal entry. After he presented himself to Israel as her king. He never denied that he was the king. When asked by Pilate, are you, are you then a king? And he said, yes, but my kingdom is not of this world. You, you Romans don't have to worry about it right now. Although Jesus Christ was the one who brought the judgment upon the Roman Empire as well. But they didn't have they didn't have to worry about Jesus overthrowing the Roman Empire at that particular time. But these these uh, uh, cleansings are were symbolic of God's judgment on Judah for failing to understand God's purpose. And think about that. And uh, let me show you this by the fact that Isaiah 56 is cited in Jesus' response when he drove out the people. What did he say? Let me read Isaiah 56, verses 6 and 7. And the foreigners, the Gentiles... Who join themselves to the Lord. To minister to him. To love the name of the Lord. And to be his servants. Everyone who keeps Sabbath and does not profane it. And who holds my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain. And make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted. On my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations or all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers outcasts, uh, the outcasts of Israel, that is the remnant. See, the outcasts of Israel is the remnant. Declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. So there, this is what Jesus quoted. This, the portion of this. Then, as he drove out the money changers. Now what was the problem? 
for the sake of merchandising, to get gain, and, and uh, they they charge exorbitant fees to visitors who came to the temple during the feast times, so that they would at least have the convenience of not having to bring their sacrifices and so forth, to provide for them an opportunity to purchase them there. That was a good idea to start out with, and, and when it started out, it was all right because it was done on the other side of the Kidron in a special place. But apparently it wasn't getting the traffic that uh, they would like, so they decided to bring it into the temple complex itself. Well, where, where should they bring it? Into the court of the Gentiles. So they effectively said to the Gentiles, we don't care that you come in here to worship at all. We're not giving you any room to worship. You, you people are dogs. Stay away. And so they basically set up their enterprise right there in the court of the Gentiles. And that angered the Lord Jesus Christ on two occasions. And that, that judgment that Jesus brought upon the, the uh, temple at that time is very clear. First of all, in the first one, he declares that he himself will replace it. Destroy this body or this temple and then I'll raise it in three days. And he was referring to his own body. He became the true temple. And in the second, he established himself as Israel's kingly authority. That the Gentiles were, will now take a prominent and prescient place in his kingdom work. He's not rejecting the Jews. Because as the Apostle Paul declares. So all Israel shall be saved. That is all the remnant. The, the elect. Of Israel. Were, are going to be saved. Just like all the Gentile elect. Will be saved. And Jesus. Is the one who will be doing it. So here Jesus is pitting himself against the true servant as the true servant of Yahweh against the, nation, the national servant who has failed in so many ways. And as I pointed out, instead of encouraging the Gentiles to join themselves to the Lord and to minister to him, to love His name, the name of the Lord and to be his servants, they filled the court of the Gentiles with this scheme to force the people out of the temple area in order to be exclusive. So, the, as I pointed out also earlier, the, the central theme of the book of Isaiah is the comforting of Zion and the restoring of her waste places like Eden. See, that's God's, you know, uh, we, we talk about heaven. Heaven is fine. It's a temporary spot right now for, for those who pass on, for those who fall asleep in Jesus. 
For to, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's a wonderful thing. But heaven's not our home. Uh, we have songs here that that would argue that. And it, and it will be in a temporary sense. But what's God's major plan? Is to restore the earth to its original Edenic qualities and to put a redeemed man on it who will do what he asked the first Adam to do, to have dominion over the works of his hands. What that looks like, I do not know. But I can tell you one thing, it'll be glorious. It'll be like nothing we've ever seen before. There will be no sin, no sickness, no sorrow. No more colds or flu, COVID or anything else. No heart situations. No sin. No sadness. Just the fullness of joy. Thus the goal the Lord declares is there in Isaiah 51 verse 5. My righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out. And my arm will judge the peoples. Judge is not always in a negative sense in Scripture either. Uh, it means God will always do right. What, how He treats us and how He deals with us, He will always do right. So the, 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 uh, in the 51st chapter there, in verse 9 through 11, the uh, prophet here responds to this, to this declaration of, my, of God's righteousness with a prayer. Prayer of seeming desperation, it's the same kind of praying that we that we often do. I do. Lord, when? When are you going to do this? Awake, awake! Put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake, as in the days of old. Don't we want to see God do some mighty and powerful things? Yes, absolutely. So to Isaiah, the glories of this Eden seemed so far off and, and elusive to, in his day of turmoil, spiritual decline, threats of invasion by terrible enemies. Kind of sounds like our times. <laughs> Nothing's changing. Nothing ever changes. So was the Lord sleeping? No. When would the righteous see the realization of these promises made? Well, Isaiah 51, 1 through chapter 52, verse 12, introduces the Lord's true servant and the one who would, through his life and work, bring these promises to realization, especially there in Isaiah 52 and verse 13 through 53 and verse 12. I'm not going to read that whole passage, but I would encourage you to. This servant is a sign given to the house of David. This is, see here, this is the interesting thing. Uh, who, Ahaz was, was the uh, king. And the prophet asked him, ask for a sign. 
because of the threat of the Assyrians. Actually, what they're afraid of, they were afraid of right that time, was a was the the uh, confederation of the Syrians, the and uh, the northern kingdom, which was a threat to the southern kingdom. God said, "They're not going to bother you." In fact, it won't be long and they'll be gone because of the Assyrians that I'm bringing in. Well then, uh, what do they fear? You see, they're not trusting the Lord. This son of David is acting like God doesn't exist. In fact, he despises him. And when the prophet asks him, ask the Lord for a sign, he said, I'm not going to tempt the Lord. That's, uh, he sounded pious. He's not being pious. He's being obstinate. I'm not asking the Lord for anything. So the prophet turns around and says to him, the Lord Himself's going to show, give you a sign. What will that sign be? What will that sign be? Unto you a child is born. Unto you a son is given. Notice, a child is born, but a son is given. The divine son. This day have I begotten thee. The divine son will become a human being through the birth of a baby. And then that is continued there in the ninth chapter with the uh, with Emmanuel. I mean, uh, excuse me, that seventh chapter is where he's talked about as Emmanuel. Emmanuel. God with us. That's the first emphasis. You don't want God. You've rejected him. You would rather worship your worthless idols. <coughs> your superstitions. But this one whom I'm bringing in is Emmanuel, God with us. Isn't that a blessing? In fact, that's what Paul emphasized about the church. The church is the gathering place of the people of God where God... It gathers with his people. That's what temple is all about. Temple is a place where God exists and he exists with his people. And then this, this uh, son is going to be born of a virgin and the government shall be upon his shoulder according to chapter 9. So Let's get into it a little bit more here. This, this uh, servant now is reintroduced, as we've, we've emphasized. This whole section of, of the servant of Yahweh. Israel there was called to be the servant of, of Yahweh. But as I pointed out, national Israel failed to fulfill this, citing uh, a calling. He says but in, in chapter uh, 41, verse 8, But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen... The offspring of Abraham, my friend. Abraham, the friend of God. But as the Apostle Paul clearly tells us, it's not the natural seed 
of Abraham, but those who are related to him by promise. And so in verse uh, chapter 40, uh, 42 in verse 1, Behold my servant upon whom, uh, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. And he will bring forth justice to the nations. In previous references to the Lord's servant, national Israel seems to be that servant. The reality, however, and this is where it's confusing, because on the one hand he talks about their utter uh, judgment and destruction, and then on the other he talks about his promises to restore and to to fulfill his promises to them. So how do you sort that out? Well, you've got to sort it out by understanding that Jesus Christ is the key here. And that those who are in Jesus Christ are really the true Israel, which includes then Gentiles. Not replacing Israel, but fulfilling it. God worked a miracle in fulfilling the promises he made to Abraham and to his offspring. But of them, he says there in chapter 42, verse 24, the nation of Israel says, Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing, and an abomination is he who chooses you. So are you going to choose the national Israel, the national servant Israel, or are you going to choose the replacement of the national servant Israel? Thus God confirms his purpose there in Isaiah 41, verse 27. And again, not through national Israel. So we read, I was with the first to say to Zion, Behold, here they are, the realization of the promises. And I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. And in verse 28 he says, But when I look at national Israel, there is no one among whom... Among these, there is no counselor who, when I ask, gives gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Wow. So national Israel then, confounded here with the false gods, that were controlling the people. So how could the Lord bring about these purposes? And here's the revelation in chapter 42 and verse, verses 1 through 4. Behold my servant. said, I'm going to put my spirit upon him. He will not cry aloud nor lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break and a, faint, and a faintly burning wick shall he not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice, he will not grow faint, nor be discouraged. Actually, the Hebrew there is he won't get bruised. A bruised reed will he not break, but he will not be bruised in the process. Isn't that interesting? Till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. So the reason here that the Lord preserves His servant national Israel was for one purpose and one purpose alone. 
so that his true servant could be brought in. This true offspring of Abraham, this the seed of Isaac, this the son of David of the tribe of Judah to realize all that he purposed for Zion, the true and believing remnant of the nation. Because the true servant acts wisely and succeeds, Zion is redeemed. And the first line of verse of chapter 14, excuse me, verse 14 reads, as many were astonished at you, as many were astonished at you. Some translations have at him, but I think you is the proper one. But he, And the promise then of chapter 52, verses 6 through 9, how beautiful are the feet of him who brings the good news, who publishes salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. The Lord has comforted and redeemed His people, composing the Jerusalem that is from above. And while the world falls apart into deeper and deeper sin and rebellion and judgment looms, many will stand in astonishment as God in His grace and mercy saves a host of people, not because they're innocent. No, they are in reality as guilty and as depraved as the worst. Yet the Savior acts wisely and succeeds. Zion benefits. Isn't that wonderful? Now he uses an unconventional method. Israel's preoccupation with their Messiah caused them to reject the Lord's servant when he came to them. We saw, we saw that very clearly there in the Gospel of John. What were they expecting? They were expecting this rider on the white horse there depicted in the book of Revelation. Coming to conquer, conquering and to conquer. Well, yes, he's on that white horse and he is riding out conquering and to conquer, but not in a way that the Jewish nation of his day expected. They believed that they were okay, that their Messiah was going to come and fix it for them. That he'd overthrow the Gentiles and make the, the old nation of Israel the thing. Establish them as the people of all peoples. The rulers of the earth. And as Jesus said to Nicodemus, Except a man be born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. And certainly, Nicodemus expected to be there. No, this, this, this unconventional method here is that Jesus will humble himself. And which we saw there in, these, in the reference... A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax will he not quench. He's not going to come in with a sword slashing and, and destroying the enemies and acting uh, like that, but the scripture says he was going to act wisely. Humble himself. He, be, he became a servant even and humbled himself. Submitting himself even to death. He came so that, as John 1.11 says, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. They didn't want this humble servant. 
They wanted a king. Powerful figure. See, that's what we're always looking for. We're looking for this powerful figure. Maybe that's not God's plan. So as Peter announced there, this Jesus in Acts chapter 2 verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God whom you crucified and killed by the hands of wicked men. And yet through the, the actions of these wicked men, God accomplished the goal of saving his people from the ends of the earth. My servant shall act wisely. So, the, what's interesting here is the, the Hebrew word shakal that's used there. Uh, the ESV translates it, my, but my, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. Behold, my servant shall, uh, will prosper. That's uh, uh, one was King James Version. Uh, New, New American Standard has prosper. And uh, the Lex, the Lexum version there of, of the Logos Bible program has my servant shall achieve success. How? By acting wisely. See, that's in the word, inherent in the word shakal in the Hebrew, which is either to be wise or to prosper. And, and technically, you can't really prosper unless you act wisely. And I think that's the point. So sovereign pur the sovereign purpose of God has to be fulfilled. And again, this is one of the great themes of Isaiah as well, is the sovereignty of Almighty God. And he demonstrates Israel's failure, and we would, we would say, how could God be, could be uh, sovereign and yet have all this, have this nation disappoint him in this way? Well, did, didn't, couldn't God fix it? Yeah, hey, he could have fixed it in a heartbeat. But that was never his promise, or pur his purpose. His purpose was Emmanuel. And this is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? And his hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? They just they said, we don't care about anybody else. They can all go into the judgment. But Israel, yeah, we're God's elect chosen people, and therefore God is in favor of us and us only. And it doesn't matter how wicked we are or how many idols we worship. <clears throat> we are the seed of Abraham. And God made promises to Abraham and he has to fulfill those promises. We can live like we please and that's okay. Uh -uh. God says, this purpose concerning the whole earth and it's stretched out over all the nations. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring from the end, the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, 
And I will accomplish all my purpose. I'm going to do it. I have spoken. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will do it. Isaiah 46 verses 9 through 11. So in this this glorification, his servant will be astonished. He will astonish kings by the deeds of truth that have been previously hidden from them. And uh, you wonder, how can that be? I, I want to tell you folks, it's happened all throughout history. Every time the people of God have been heavily persecuted, there have been those who have said, this is not possible that people should act this way, be, behave this way. Why do these people suffer so joyfully? It astonishes kings. So the scripture says, he will sprinkle many nations. What does that mean? It, the, the idea there is that uh, uh, of the sprinkling of blood. And, uh, it's, it, and it's interesting, there's a homonym in the, in the Hebrew language for startle. Nazal. Which sounds like nazal, which is to sprinkle. So here's a significant issue, not not readily observed by non-Jewish readers. And that is that only priests, uh, the sons of Levi, were authorized to sprinkle the blood in the redemption, in the redemptive ritual. Jesus was not a Levite. So his sprinkling was a startling thing. So here, here is an example of knowing the truth and yet not believing the truth. Translators of the Septuagint understood more than is credited to them. And think of the scribes who, who uh, understood that Bethlehem would be the birthplace of Israel's expected king, Micah 5.5, 5, whom they readily brought up when the wise men asked, where is he going to be born? Bethlehem of, in Ephrata. But did they leave everything and hot-footed to Bethlehem to worship this king? The scribes? Who were the scribes? They were the guys who knew the scriptures. They knew the scriptures, but they weren't going to obey the scriptures. They really didn't believe the scriptures. And so we have it here too. He's going to startle many nations with the sprinkling. Kings. People see it and they're amazed. But has it made any change in them? No. And uh, as they said to Jesus, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said, no, he's not. If, he were, if you were Abraham's children, you'd act like Abraham, but you're not. You're not. But the Spirit of God is still at work in ways that startle people. And they are beyond comprehension of the average person. But they're accomplishing the purpose of God. Who in this modern culture thinks for a minute that Jesus Christ is exalted and ruling over all. Right now, it looks like he is uh, 
losing the battle badly. No one but his own enlightened ones understand. Everything is fully under his control. He is successful in accomplishing the Father's purpose. Very successful. You're here. What he's done in your life. That's astonishing. And then? The day is coming then when the kings will put their hands over their mouths in utter astonishment when they see and finally understand that evil which undergirds and empowers them has been fully subdued. So what can we take away? Let me just share briefly here with you three things. Number one, are you disturbed and fearful of events in these days? Don't. Don't be. Like Isaiah, and Isaiah prayed that way because he said, Oh Lord, where are you? Wake up! Where is, he, where is your arm of strength? Come out of your apparent slum, slender and flex your mighty arm. Well, he's doing just that. We just don't see it. No matter how dark and sinful the days in which we live, God is in full control and His plan is working out for the glory of God and for the exaltation of His Son. Fear not. Number two, how much do you know about the truths that are revealed here? Has the Spirit of God startled you? Has it caused you an enlightenment to see the things that were not previously seen by you? To be told the things that were previously not told and you understand those things that you've never heard before? Jesus acted wisely to succeed in coming to earth. And now through His Spirit, He continues the work wisely through His, his uh, Zion, the church, the church of the living God. So how engaged are you in this work? You know, there, there are many Christians out there who have rejected the church. And I understand it from the perspective that there are many churches that have failed to be churches. The church is very clearly laid out in the Scriptures what it should look like and how it should be. And when, when, it, when the church fails to be the church, people do get hurt. But that's not an excuse. For the Scripture says, Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. So, God's acting wisely through Zion, His church, the church of the living God. So how engaged are you in this work? And then thirdly, has the truth opened your eyes? Do you, do you truly know God? Jesus said to the Jews who thought they knew Him, whoever is of God hears the words of God, and the reason why you do not hear them is because you are not of God. Are you hearing Him? And do you really know Him? Father, thank You for this time of the year that we can reflect and celebrate the coming of our Savior. 
we know that it was not yet this time, and yet we choose to at this time to celebrate it, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I do pray that we would have our eyes focused on the right things. That we'd get back in the book of Isaiah a little bit. And re reconsider these powerful truths that are set before this. That you are the Lord our God. And you're the one who is able to put your words in our mouths. Lord, I pray that we would be obedient. And we praise you and thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.